Lord, our hearts are given great joy to know that we are the children of the sovereign God, the one who reigns supreme in the universe, who controls the course of history, and who at the same time cares about us individually, and who is present with us this morning, right here in this room. And you're here, Father, that we might walk in newness of life, that our faith will be strengthened, that our understanding of your character will be deepened. And Father, that's the purpose for which we study the Word of God, to understand you better and to know who you are and, and what it is that you have called us to do and to be. Father, I pray that you will keep our minds focused and our hearts focused on the truth of, of the being and as we become the people you want us to be, that the doing will follow through the inspiration and strength of your Spirit. So, Father, we just trust that in every way what you want done in this next hour will be accomplished, not only in this room, but uh, throughout this building this day. And, Father, we pray that as the Word of God is going forth out across this land today, that many hearts will be touched particularly as, as this is the special Sunday, uh, which has been set aside to pray for the lost of America. We trust that this will be a day when many men and women, children, will be brought into the kingdom of God through the work of the Spirit of God and the pronouncement of the Word of God. We ask you to glorify yourself that way this day in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to... 32nd chapter of Exodus, I will read uh, verses 30 through 35, which will bring us to the end of that chapter. The events which transpired at Mount Sinai were profound and history-transforming events, beginning, of course, with Moses going up on the mountain as the mountain quaked and smoked to receive the Decalogue, and then God's response to the Israelites' disobedience in the building of the golden calf. And then as we go into chapter 33 and into chapter 34, Moses' encounter with God in a profound way. And as we study through this passage, these passages of Scripture, I trust that our understanding of the nature of God will be greatly enhanced and our faith will be encouraged. Let me read beginning in verse 30 of Exodus 32. And it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. And they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. 
One of the things, of course, we note as we study Scripture that God speaks very directly and God speaks very specifically. And he doesn't generalize. Uh, he, he deals directly with the issue. And, and we see that not only in this passage, but throughout this, this section of Scripture, I think in a more profound way than possibly in some others. Moses, Moses had stood in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights on top of Mount Sinai. And because of his, of his intimate relationship with God, which will become even more intimate as a result of these subsequent events, Moses understood more than anyone else the severity of the sin that Israel had committed that day at the base of the mountain. I think this is a, a profound example to us of the fact that those who walk in obedience with God and in the knowledge of His Word recognize sin and they recognize heresy much more quickly and much more certainly than those who just kind of walk around in the generic fog of apathy relative to Christianity in, in basic disobedience and, and ignorance of the Word of God and of His ways. It's one of the reasons why heresy takes such a powerful hold uh, often in the church. Heresy could never get root if God's people knew God's Word. just couldn't happen because God's people would reject it. Oh, sure, people out on the fringes who have never really been converted could be drawn off into heresy, and certainly they are by the thousands, but true Christians wouldn't be sucked into heresy as they have been many times through history if they really knew God's Word. Because heresy is always a deviation from the truth. Not so blatantly deviant that, you know, any fool could see the difference. But close, you know, kind of parallel to the truth, but not true. Moses understood this very much so. I mean, even though Aaron said, oh, we're going to worship Yahweh, and this golden calf represents Yahweh. He didn't say this represents Igabugu, you know, some horrible god over here or Apis of Egypt. This was Yahweh. It's only if we know the standard that God has set and we endeavor to live by that standard that we can really understand when others are deviating from the standard. That's why God has given us what's called the canon of Scripture. The word canon means rule, standard, that which you compare everything to. So the scripture is the comparison by which everything else is compared. And as we know that, it of course gives us the ability to detect error and heresy and deviation. The ultimate standard by which everything is compared, of course, is the character of God. And that's what this book's all about. Amen. Telling us the character of God, the nature of God. That's why it's so important that we understand it. That's why, you know, one of Satan's greatest lies is to convince people that it's not important to, to really know the Word of God. If you just go to church and you sing the songs and, and you listen to a passage now and then and you do all the Christian things, that everything will be okay. And, of course, you don't want to pray too much either because that's, that's really getting kind of, you know, you're, you're getting over into the extreme element. You're, you're becoming a radical if you pray too much or read the Word of God too much. And that is the lie of, of Satan. I mean, that's from the pit. You can't, I, you know, I, I can hardly imagine how we could read the Word of God too much with the lifestyles we live. <laughs> I mean, 
uh, I suppose if you spent every minute of your day uh, uh, studying the Word of God, but who, who can do that? You know, None of us. So what happens is we go to the other extreme and don't study it at all often. It's more likely to be what happens. And so, so these are so important to us in, in understanding who God is. Because in my experience, in my understanding of church history, God does not just drop understanding of himself out of the clear blue sky into someone's head and heart. Whoop! Oh yes, boy, suddenly I know God. You know. No, it, it comes from a long, patient walk with God and a study of the word and prayer and fellowship with God's people. I think it was with a very heavy heart that Moses convened the people the next day and proclaimed to them, you have committed a great sin. I think shivers went up and down the spine of these people as Moses went on to say, and I must return back up the mountain to face God concerning this. I mean, they had watched this mountain. It quivered, it smoked, you know, and the lightning and the thunder, and they weren't allowed to even touch it, nor even the animals touched the mountain. And, and Moses is going to go back up the mountain concerning what we have specifically done. We're in big trouble. He was going to go up to offer atonement for the sin of the people. He could make no promises to them. He couldn't, I mean, he knew God was a God of mercy, but he could not promise them that in this, this instance, they would necessarily be receiving mercy. Because this was a heinous sin. And so Moses went up the mountain and left them to deal with their own guilt and shame. You know, unfortunately, there are in, in the circles today of uh, secular psychology is the thought that, that guilt and shame shouldn't be there. There's something wrong with it if you have guilt and shame that, you know, you shouldn't have any guilt or shame. You know, yes, you should. <laughs> yes, I should. If I am guilty and if I've done something shameful, I need to have guilt and shame because God created these, these reactions and, and these responses. And so Israel certainly felt guilt and shame as they watched Moses go back to the foot of the mountain and begin the ascent again, up that well-worn path by now, Moses had walked that route so many times by now that he probably knew each place to put his foot, his sandal, as he marched up that mountain, this time as the intercessor. And I think it's really wonderful to look at how Moses walks into God's presence. Oh, I think he did it with great humility. But he did not go in and say, uh, God, by the way, these people down here, um, you know, they, they, they're prone to make mistakes, and so I, I hope you won't really hold it against them. Huh. No, that is not the approach that Moses takes at all. Moses walks in before God and directly and honestly presents the facts, knowing, of course, that God knows the facts very well. I mean, he was well aware of the fact that God is omniscient. He says in verse 31, And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. No beating around the bush. No trying to cover it over and make it look better than it was. These are the facts, Lord, and you know them right well. Moses made no excuses for the people. He was not going to depend on his ability as a lawyer to stand there before God as the lawyer for the defense. Instead, he was going to depend completely on the mercy of God. 
And that's where we all are. We, we cannot stand before God and defend ourselves because God knows everything. The only thing we can depend upon is His mercy. Moses' words at the end of verse 30 where he says, Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Take on a new meaning as we read down in verse 32 where he says, But now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from thy book which thou hast written. I don't think the people had a slightest concept when he said, I'm going to go up and perhaps God, I, I can make atonement for your sin. I don't think the people had the slightest idea that he was offering himself. Moses is here further demonstrating a Christ-like nature. He pled with God to forgive the sin of his people. That is the work of an intercessor. And as we've already noted, Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. That is Christ-like in and of itself. But then he went on to acknowledge that he knew that God's forgiveness required atonement, some kind of a sacrifice. And so in effect, what he is doing here is offering himself as a sacrifice to substitute for his own people. Blot me out, Lord. As Christ became sin for us, that we might have forgiveness, so Moses was willing to bear the sins of his people, that they might have forgiveness. The problem was Moses could not do that. Moses could not bear the sins of his people because he himself was a sinner. And in God's plan, the only way sin could be forgiven was for one to be sinless who could make the sacrifice. And of course, as we know, that could only be God himself in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ died that our sins might be put upon him and that we might have eternal cleansing. Moses could not do that. But Moses had a right attitude. Moses had a right heart towards God and a right heart towards his own people. Lord, I'm willing to be sacrificed on their behalf because I care for them, I love them. Where would he get such love? I, to me, I have a real hard time fathoming that. I can hardly imagine myself you know, offering to be eternally blotted out so that somebody else will be accepted in. Not that I wouldn't want them to be accepted in, but the idea of being blotted out is pretty horrendous when you think about it. Now the question is, what is he talking about anyway here? What is this book that Moses infers God was writing in? Well, in, in Psalm 69, we won't turn there, but in, in Psalm 69 and verse 28, we're told that, the, that there is a book of life which is the record of the righteous. A book of life which is the record of the righteous. In, in several of the prophets, as you read through, through them, particularly Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, we have the inference of there being a record of the righteous. And Daniel makes it a little bit more specific when he says in the 12th chapter, Talking about the tribulations which are to come in the end times, Daniel said, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And then the minor prophet Malachi in the third chapter, again in reference to the concept of tribulation, said a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and to esteem his name. A book of remembrance. A book of remembrance. 
Paul clearly refers to such a book in um, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 3, Paul says, Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women. He's referring back to Yodia and Syntyche, who were apparently in the church but not living too harmoniously together. To help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's using that, of course, as a synonym for having eternal life here. But, but he refers to a book of life. The, the most frequent references and the ones that seem to be most powerful and descriptive, of course, are the ones that John gives us in Revelation. As you turn, if you will, back to the 20th chapter of Revelation, certainly you've uh, come across these many times. In Revelation chapter 20, in uh, verse 12, John says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And then down in verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then the next chapter, the last verse, 21, 27, 27th verse of chapter 21, speaking of the new Jerusalem, he says, And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. This is a very humanly understandable thing. Because obviously, uh, throughout history, in fact, writing was largely invented for the very purpose of recording items that were contributed to temples for worship. You know, so many bushels of wheat and so many calves or whatever were, was given by so-and-so to the temple. So, you know, for us to think, aha, so God keeps this record and, you know, puts our names in here and uh, all those whose names are in there, they're the ones who are going to be in heaven and all those names who, which are not in there, they won't be going to heaven. But the question that to me came was, is there literally a book? Or actually, the, the Hebrew is scroll. Is there actually a big scroll up there? A giant scroll in heaven, which, which, in which people's names are actually literally written. You, you would think God could at least be modern and have a gigantic computer with this huge hard disk, you know? Can you imagine that? And those whose names are written on the eternal hard disk. Be much easier to scroll that than it would be to scroll a scroll. Are we talking about a reality or a symbol here? I mean, after all, we're talking about the omniscient God. Is it possible that God would have forgotten one of us down the line? You know, he made billions of people easy to drop a name here or there. Kind of fell out of the record someplace. I don't think so. God is absolutely perfect in his knowledge. And he, know, he knew everyone before he ever created the world. He knew the name of every person who would ever come to be a true child of his. So does he need a scroll? Of course he doesn't need a scroll. But is there a scroll? Well, I think there possibly there is. And the purpose of it would be because the angels are not omniscient, and neither are the redeemed. 
And, and for the angels to be able to scroll through there, or for the redeemed even when we get there to say, whoa, look at this, here's my name emblazoned on this scroll. Well, maybe, I don't know. But certainly the symbolism is, is important here of what Moses is talking. Well, did Moses really believe there was a book? Well, maybe he did. Because, but where he got this idea, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe because God wrote the Decalogue on stone and gave it to him to carry it down the mountain. Uh, wh where did he get this understanding? Well, we don't know. It may have just been symbolic words used by, by Moses. But the truth is what's important here. The scripture tells us that our names have been forever written in heaven from before the foundation of the world, that is. From before the foundation of the world, our names have been inscribed or our names are part of, of God's great plan. To me, though, the real dramatic thing here is um, Moses' willingness to, in effect, have his name blotted out of that book. And this, his offer is not totally unique in Scripture. Most of you are probably aware of the fact that the Apostle Paul, in effect, made the same type of offer, even though not with the same terminology. But in the ninth chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated for, from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This demonstrates Paul's great compassion for his people. This demonstrates his Christ-like character in that Paul was willing to give himself for his people. And that is what Christ did. He gave himself for us all. And he did, at least momentarily, go to hell. He did bear the sins of us all. And, and, and the God, the, the God in, his Father in heaven had to turn his back on him. I mean, for us, it seems, well, it's also momentary, momentary. But we have to understand that how in the world can the eternal triune God forever interlinked, can one person turn his back on the other person? I mean... Don't try to explain it. You know, there isn't any way with human logic and human understanding we can understand that. But we simply have to take on faith that that's what the Word of God says. And for us to understand the horrendousness of that, that is also beyond us. But we see a little glimmer of this in Moses, and we see a little glimmer of this in Paul. Men who are willing, I think it wasn't just words, I think it was in their hearts, they were willing if it could possibly be to give themselves for the sake of their people. Now that's compassion. That's love. That's really the love of God. And that was how close they were walking with God. That's how they understood the nature of God. The closer you, with, you walk with the Lord, the more you reflect His nature, the more Christ-like we are as we walk closer with Christ. You know, they always joke about the fact that people who have been married for a long, long time get to look like each other. And it, I don't think it's so much that their, their features become so much alike, but, but the way they respond and the commonality of their thought and actions kind of makes them blend together almost. 
And just think about that. I mean, if we walk with Christ, we begin to look like Christ, think like Christ, act like Christ, talk like Christ. I mean, is there anyone we could more wish that were true for each of us? Generally speaking, that true Christ-like nature tends to become more a reality to those who are older in the faith. And to me, that doesn't mean because you're older that this just automatically happens. It's because of a long walk with the Lord. It just, as I mentioned earlier, it just doesn't happen automatically or overnight. I mean, if you're young in the faith, you're young in the faith. <laughs> and you can't be old in the faith just overnight. You've got to get there by years and years and years of walking with the Lord. It doesn't mean, of course, that you can't, one person can't grow faster than another. This does happen. But this seems to be the nature of the way God has created the church. How does God respond to Moses' offer here? Well, first of all, Moses, uh, God points out to Moses certainly something Moses knew, and, and that was, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. The biblical uh, principle here is very clear. Each person is accountable for his or her own sin. I can't die for your sin. You can't die for my sin. I can't do anything for your sin. You can't do anything for my sin. I am accountable directly to God for my own sin. Christ is the only one who could take that sin away from me. And so the prophet Ezekiel later would say, the soul who sins will die. His blood will be upon his own head. Moses' offer was Christ-like. It was laudable. It just wasn't possible. In Psalm, the ninth Psalm, the fifth verse, we read these words, Thou hast rebuked the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast blotted out their name forever and ever. It is God alone who can and has written the name in the book is God alone who can blot out that name, whatever that might mean. I think we have to understand the symbolism of all of this. And personally, my own understanding of this is not that by goofing up, God's going to wipe your name out of the book where he put it before he even created the world. I think it's, it's a symbolic statement of referring to the fact that that name never was there in the first place. It's eternal. It's, it's eternal wording. It's going all the way back to, to the beginning of time. Now, God respected Moses' intercession, and he answered his prayer. God always answers intercessory prayer. You may not know the answer immediately, but he does answer that prayer. And he told Moses, go back down the mountain and lead that people to Canaan. That's an answer to prayer. Because in saying that, God is directly implying that there will be a people to lead and they will follow. Otherwise, why say it? If God's going to go, you know, and they're all going to become vaporized and God's going to create a new nation out of Moses, there wouldn't be any point in him saying what he did here to Moses. So certainly that was encouraging to Moses when God said, go down the mountain and lead the people to Canaan. Ooh, you know, God heard my prayer. God has preserved this people. But, but God went beyond that. To encourage him, he said, and I'm going to send my angel before you. 
And my angel is going to lead this people and prepare the way and is going to clean out the enemy as you go forward through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. But we come to a very ominous statement in verse 34. He says, But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. It's an ominous word in the midst of this passage. Nevertheless. I know if God makes a promise and then he says, nevertheless, it's kind of like, whoops, the other shoe is going to drop here. Moses has interceded with, with divine majesty and has thereby averted disaster. Now, it's not the work of Moses, as we've already talked about before. The very heart to intercede was God's heart in Moses. The very, very prayer of intercession was God's prayer through Moses. But through Moses' obedience, disaster was averted. And, and the people could continue to hope for the promised land. But the sin of Israel was so great that God could not just ignore it. It's interesting, um, uh, the commentators, Kyle and Delich, make this statement about this. They say the punishment was not remitted, but only postponed in the long-suffering of God until the day of retribution or visitation. The day of visitation came at length when the stiff-necked people had filled up the measure of their sin through repeated rebellion against Jehovah and his servant Moses and were sentenced at Kadesh to die out in the wilderness. What they're saying here is that this sin was simply put into the cup and the other sins were added to the cup. And then when they absolutely refused to go into the promised land, when the spies came back and said, oh, there's giants in the land, they big, tall, walled cities and all of this. And although Joshua and Caleb said, but, but God is with us and there's, the fruit is wonderful, we can do it. And they all chose to believe the ten and to not go in. That was simply the final straw, to use a common uh, phrase. The cup of iniquity was thereby full. God did not curse them to die in the wilderness over the next 38 years because of that single refusal. It was based on refusal, rebellion, rejection after rejection, which God simply put aside, stored up, until they had reached a measure where he decided to act. Now, I, I, that, I use that word very... Uh, cautiously decided. I mean, God doesn't just make up his mind all of a sudden to do something. But where the point had been reached when God would effect his punishment. Think about it. When Adam and Eve violated God's commandment in the Garden of Eden, God could have zapped them right then and be done with it. But he didn't. Cain killed Abel. Yes, Cain bore a punishment as a result, but that was another sin. And the sins began to pile up until we read in the sixth chapter of Genesis that it had gotten so great that God, God acted. God sent the great flood and wiped out the human race, save for eight people. It wasn't one sin. It was sin after sin after sin after sin until the stench of human disobedience 
almost polluted heaven, if it could possibly do so. And, and so God sent his, his punishment. And I, th I think we need to think about this very clearly as we consider our country today and its future. You know, I, I think we're watching the cup fill. And the only way disaster will be averted, I think, is if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Which, of course, you may remember was the great uh, verse of uh, the bicentennial year in, in 1976, Second Chronicles 7.14. And, and certainly that was a wonderful focus. And, and certainly that was used by God in many ways, but it certainly has, it may have slowed the filling of the cup, but it sure hasn't stopped it. And so we really need to be uh, a people of prayer for our nation. You know, this Sunday is the Sunday we pray for the lost of America. And we need to pray for the lost of America from the very lowest to the very highest levels in our society. Tina? Could this also be a reference to the final judgment day? Could be, sure. Many statements in Scripture are made to refer to a specific event and then also to the end times. We see this over and over again, particularly in prophecy. There will be a prophetic statement which will apply immediately or in the near future, but it also has eternal ramifications too. Yeah. It's very common. Moses, of course, is referred to by God as his prophet. So in, in many ways this is a prophecy. Verse 35 in this passage says, Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. <laughs> Aaron can't escape this. Which Aaron had made. God knew. What, what does this mean? It, it's possible that this refers to the slaying of the 3,000 that were already slain by the Levites. That's, that's possible. But it could also refer to some undescribed plague which God sent as a warning of what would happen if they continued in the rebellion, but, but, but so no plague is mentioned here. So that's, that's a possibility. And of course, it also could be, again, prophetic of the day at Kadesh when God would declare that everybody 20 years older and older will die in this wilderness except Joshua and Caleb and will not enter the promised land. So as three possible ways of understanding that particular verse. But what it teaches us is, as I quoted to you a moment ago from Ezekiel, the soul that sins will die. And the only hope for the soul that sins to avoid that death is total repentance and casting himself or herself, in our case, of course, on the blood of Christ, thinking back historically. Or in the case of the Israelites, casting themselves also in the blood of Christ, but looking ahead, not even knowing that Christ would yet come, but nevertheless participating in the atonement that, that God brought and, and taught all the way back with Adam and Eve. Somehow they knew something about atonement. And, and to the point when it became institutionalized, I guess you could say, uh, with, uh, on, on Mount Sinai. And so it all comes down to the attitude of the heart in, in total humility before God and casting ourselves in our helplessness upon His mercy and then walking in obedience. What did Jesus say 
to the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. Now, he knew, of course, that she wasn't going to go and be a perfect person after that. But she would be a transformed person, a person who had been forgiven by Christ and would go forward now in the strength of God and, and, and shun those, particularly the sin in which she was taken, but, uh, you know, to, to begin to walk in newness of life. Well, let's look at chapter 33, the first six verses here, to begin with at least, be, at least begin to look at that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people which you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, and go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God informed Moses that he was to prepare the people to resume their journey. Only now they were to head north towards Canaan. No longer were they to be wandering south and eastward, but now they were to head north towards Canaan. I mean, they were to head towards the culmination of their journey. Why was he allowing them to do this? He says specifically, because of my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them this land, to give their posterity this land. Because I made this promise, these people will go forward. God keeps his promises. Even though his people are unworthy, God keeps his promises. Paul says that I know whom I have believed and that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day in spite of the fact that Paul, as you and I, would sin even during the remaining years of his life on earth. God keeps his promise. Through Jesus Christ, God has promised to save us because we have come to him in faith and humility and received Christ as our Savior. He has promised to save us. Therefore, he will do that even though we will fail often in our walk in the intervening years. God will always keep his word. Not only was he going to keep his word in, in carrying out this promise, he was going to give them an angel to drive out their enemies and to clear their way for the conquest of the promised land. Now, if they had really put their roots down in this promise, when they stood there at the borders of Canaan at Kadesh, and the word came back from the spies, they would have said, who cares about the tall walls and the giant people? We have an angel who's going before us, and he'll do in those dudes. But they didn't. Interesting, though, you can kind of measure the tone by which God gave these instructions to Moses by looking at the last part of verse 3, where he says, 
You know, he, he, get, he, he says in the first part of verse 3, Go up to a land which is flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you're an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. Whoa. It's kind of like, <laughs> you're given this wonderful picture, and all of a sudden, whap! God warned them. It was to their advantage that he not be in their midst, because the holy God cannot tolerate a sinful and rebellious people. And by his very nature, he must destroy them. Something of his nature was re revealed by the writer of the Hebrews at the end of the 12th chapter of the book of the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews. The writer says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If we walk with God in reverence and awe, we have nothing to fear from that consuming fire, because that consuming fire will only purify our lives. That consuming fire will only uh, produce the true gold that is there. But if we do not walk in reverence and awe, that consuming fire is to be feared because it will destroy. God is not to be toyed with, although the vast majority of the people of the world are toying with him all the time. And it's to God's, I mean, it's an explanation of God's character that he tolerates this for so long. But you know, that verse keeps, this keeps ringing down through the, the, the halls of history. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. God only has to put, it up, put up with it for three score and ten years, and if by reason of strength, four score. And of course, time doesn't mean anything to God anyway. And, and then people will receive their due. It's not that God enjoys that. It doesn't. You know, Scripture clearly says that God does not enjoy uh, death or punishment or any of the rest of it because he is a God of love and grace, but he is also a God of justice. The warning God makes here is absolutely serious. When God says to Israel, I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people and I will have to destroy you, God's very serious about that. But at the same time, he is testing them. He is testing the sincerity of their repentance. He instructed Moses exactly what to say to the people and what they were to do in response. How were they to demonstrate the sincerity of their repentance? They were to strip off the jewelry and the ornaments that they bore on their bodies as an outward expression of a humble submission of their hearts to the living God. you have any idea why God chose that particular symbol? I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with jewelry. I mean, God gave them the jewelry in the first place. Why did he choose that symbol? What was it they made the golden calf from? They made it from their jewelry. <laughs> so God is simply saying, you know, if you can sacrifice this to make a heinous God, you can certainly put it off to serve the true and the living God. Well, we, we can't look at it today, but the people are overwhelmed. People are absolutely overwhelmed, and they go into deep mourning. 
And they willingly put off all their ornaments. Oh, goodness, yes. We won't wear any of it. Must have been tough for a few, but they, they put it aside. As we look next week further, there, there's some really profound stuff in this chapter. And then as we move into the 34th chapter, when, when Moses has an encounter with God that I think every one of us could spiritually envy, I suppose you might say. And of course, we even have a song, you know, He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, which is based on that passage in the 34th chapter of of Exodus, but we'll look at that over the next uh, few weeks.